Morning, church. Morning, church. Thanks. I knew y'all could do better with the greeting. The singing was amazing. It was great to be down front here. Just turn my right ear. Uh, huge encouragement to hear you guys sing. Preaching together is what we like to call it. If you're a guest, my name is Kelly. I serve as senior pastor. It's my pleasure to open God's word with you this morning. As our guests, we hope you feel a quick and growing sense of belonging here at Glom Bible Church as you're in worship with us each week. We ask that you not leave empty-handed. You pick up the little book titled Following Jesus. It's on the welcome booth, which is out in the welcome center as you're exiting today. You can just grab a copy. It'll help you get to know us a little better. Let's open our scripture together to Acts chapter 20. My prayer for us this morning is that we'd be encouraged. In fact, my proposed takeaway for this morning's passage is that we'd not only be encouraged, but that we'd increasingly become encouragers. If the gospel's anything, it is an encouragement. We're loved unconditionally. You're loved perfectly right now, just as you are. You're loved totally, completely by your creator. And that love has been demonstrated in the sinless life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the culture saturated with this good news will be an encouraging culture. I was asked a challenging question uh, in the last couple weeks by another minister, an older man, asked me when people approach the building on Sunday morning, do they do so with dread or delight? When their butts hit the seats, do they have a sense of expectation or a sense of dread? And gosh, I thought to myself, I, I hope they have a, a sense of great delight as they approach the building. I know that many of us uh, as parents, we're just happy to make it here, get the kids up and rallied and out the door. But a culture saturated by the gospel, which is good news, will be a community of encouragement. If you're a note taker, uh, you might jot down to encourage someone is literally to strengthen them to act in courage. I've tried to highlight the word courage inside encouragement there, fairly straightforward. It's to strengthen someone to act with great courage. To be an encourager is to strengthen someone's resolve, someone's determination to continue on a particular course, in this case, following after Christ. When we are encouraging someone, we're trying to help them find what's needed. We're trying to motivate, stir, provoke, move them towards a particular goal. Are we encouragers? Are we being encouraged? Do we have encouragers in our life? Are we offering encouragement to others? Do you need encouragement this morning to follow after Jesus? To follow after Jesus as a spouse, as a parent, as a student? We all need encouragement to some degree because we're all facing challenges. One of the blessings and the burdens of being a pastor is I, I know the battle's being fought. I enter the room and I'm, I'm thinking, for many of us, it's halftime. And we're down by a lot. This week holds real challenges, significant challenges, and we need encouragement to endure, 
to persevere. Truth be told, encouragement is critical. It's vital because of the daunting situations faced day to day. If you need encouragement, make sure you come forward for prayer this morning. Tim and Sarah March are down front. They'd love to pray with you. We always are most often close the service inviting people forward for prayer. The folks down front praying, they want to be an encouragement. Follow along as I read Acts chapter 20. I'm going to read 12 verses. Let's see how Paul was working to encourage others. Encouragement is a grammatical thread woven throughout these 12 verses. So when you do the work of interpreting Scripture, that's reading it and trying to apply it to your life, you, you pay close attention to grammar. That's one thing you can pay attention to. What, what's the repeated, what's the refrain that comes up time and time again? In this passage, one of them is certainly, maybe the only repeated refrain, encouragement. And so parenthetically, in today, it'll be on the screen, I've put the Greek word, parakaleo. Not that you need to know the Greek, but you need to know that there is a, there's a, a, a range of meaning for Greek words when translated to English. And so putting the parenthetical Greek word will help you see that Luke, the author of the text, is trying to highlight Paul's emphasis here. He was trying to be an encouragement. So it's on the screen, the first 12 verses. And if you're an underliner, you might underline uh, the theme that's in verse 1, verse 2, and verse 12. That is the encouragement theme. When the uproar had ended, and by uproar, Luke is given to understatement there. He means riot. (laughs) The riot in Ephesus had ended. Paul sent for his disciples, and after encouraging them. Now, folks, if I were the, Paul had been the focus of the riot. He'd been the one accused. He'd been the focus of the riot. I find it interesting. He's now encouraging his disciples. He sent for the disciples after encouraging them, parakaleo. He said goodbye and set out for Macedonia, the next city. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. Because some of the Jews had plotted against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. I'm not going to get on a boat, something about the plot. I'm going to stay on the land. I'll make my way back. Uh, into Asia through Macedonia walking. Verse 4. Here's a list of, of men in this I'll talk about later. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea. Their geographies, their places of origin are also named, and for a reason, I believe. Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy doesn't say it, but from Lystra, Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. So they're going to be there seven days. Here's what happened in Troas. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. It's the first day of the week. We've come together to break bread, as it were, spiritually speaking, all right? It's interesting, the earliest believers already had the habit of gathering on the first day of the week, together. They came together to break bread, where am I, first day of the week, there it is. Paul spoke to the people, 
And because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Luke is writing, so where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. (laughs) When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Preachers love this. They take great comfort in this. Paul went down and threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly parakaleo, comforted slash encouraged. I went to public high school, uh, and I I raised public high school only to differentiate uh, from, like, private Christian school because of the story I'm about to tell. I went to a public high school and played three sports uh, each year in high school, uh, football, basketball, and baseball. Although the high school I attended was really large, we were never very good in any of the sports I played. I should probably take some ownership of that. More times than I care to remember, we dragged ourselves off the basketball court or off the football field and into the locker room at halftime, often behind significantly, and you could feel the entire team bracing as we entered the locker room because of the storm that was about to be unleashed. You think the field was bad, being down 30 to nothing's bad. We were all bracing for what was about to happen in the locker room. It wasn't uncommon for coaches at my high school to spend halftime losing their minds, which included throwing things, trash cans, chairs across the locker room to punctuate their instructions for the second half. As they worked themselves into a frenzied lather, anything that was not nailed down often became a missile. Uh, I remember one time narrowly being missed, having to duck as a football helmet flew by my head crashing into the locker behind me. Of course, the coach wasn't aiming for me. I always assumed if he was aiming, knowing the athlete that he was, he would have hit his target. I do believe that the projectiles were simply meant to make an emphasis, not actually do harm. They wanted to challenge us. They wanted to inspire us. They wanted to encourage, emphasis on courage us. And frankly, I loved it. I loved the passion, I loved the call to fight, I loved the battle. Even this morning as I describe my experience in those high school locker rooms, I can feel the energy and I want to hit somebody. Here's a picture of my high school football coach, maybe you've seen him. All joking aside, That's how I experienced my high school coaches in their halftime speeches, as if they were William Wallace calling the Scots to act courageously in the face of insurmountable odds. If you've seen the movie Braveheart, you may remember the battle cry at the end of the movie, freedom, as he's being drawn and quartered. And his example went on to liberate the Scots. Again, 
all joking aside, while the battle is different, the challenges we face are no less real. In some cases, even more physical than the battle for Scotland's independence led by William Wallace. I want to say that again. It's not speaker's rhetoric. I mean this literally. While the battle is different, the challenges we face are no less real, and in some cases even more physical than the battle for Scotland's independence. While the Apostle Paul was no William Wallace, standing before an army with face painted and long sword drawn, we do ourselves a disservice not to consider the man offering encouragement at Troas. Yes, he was well educated. Yes, he was a preacher, a public orator by vocation. But he was not soft. He was not weak. He was not unproven. He was a man of steeled resolve. He was a man of grit, a man of tenacity, a man of dogged determination, who had been severely tried by difficulties time and time and time and time and time and time again. Whatever we are facing today as followers of Jesus Christ, Paul could speak to our situations with the greatest sincerity and say that God is able to do immeasurably more than you can ask or even imagine. He could say with the greatest authority, take heart, persevere, endure, don't give up, follow on Jesus, our Savior. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? As a player sitting in the locker room at halftime, you are inevitably faced with the question, has this coach faced what we're facing? Does he or she know what it is to be down 40 at halftime in a basketball game? At some points, 40 was more than we had scored in total in a game. Does he really know what's needed to continue to overcome? And you would be hard-pressed to find a Christian with a resume like the Apostle Paul. Imagine hearing it halftime. Imagine hearing it today concerning what you face this week and this coming month. Paul speaking to you and saying, press on. For five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes, minus one. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled. I've gone without sleep. I've I've known hunger and thirst and gone without food. I've been cold. I've been naked on the mission to follow Christ. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concerns for all the churches. Keep on. Persevere. Endure. Fight the good fight of faith. Later in this same passage, Acts chapter 20, verse 23, he says that God himself, the Holy Spirit, has revealed that imprisonment lay ahead for him. Persecutions lay ahead for him. And he's making his way around the Mediterranean, encouraging other people. How about the... <laughs> I don't know why it comes to mind. Uh, God loves you and has a difficult plan for your life. Persevere. Endure. The title of this series is Together for the Gospel. In today's passage, we see Paul, along with his companions, traveling from town to town, doing the together part of it. Together is the encouragement part of it. Verse 1, after the riot was over, after they had thought about throwing me in prison and beating me, I encouraged those in Ephesus and set out for the, the next town, the next region, Macedonia. I hate to say it, but after the riot's over, I'd be a little tempted to go home to Tarsus and lick my wounds. After the riot's over, he pressed on. He turned his attention to helping others. Speaking many words of encouragement, verse 2, to believers along the way, he finally arrived in Greece where he stayed three months to encourage, to build up. He'd been there before. In Troas, when Eutychus was raised from the dead after a deadly fallout of a window, the people were greatly encouraged, comforted. Preachers love the passage where the teenage guy falls out of the window because he, Paul's perceivably droning on and on. Preachers take great comfort in that as folks sleep around the room. And the truth is, Eutychus was probably a teenager who had worked all day. Luke notes that there were lamps lit, so it's a hot, stuffy room up on the third floor. The teenager's the brightest one probably in the room. He's tired, doesn't want to fall asleep, wants to hear from... He wants to hear the halftime speech of the greatest coach he's ever met, Paul the Apostle. And so he perches himself in the third-story window, helping, hoping the breeze keeps him awake. It doesn't. He falls to his death. But no worries. God raises Eutychus from the dead through the ministry of Paul. Interestingly, this is the last of eight individual resurrections in Scripture. Bible trivia, can you name all eight? <laughs> there are several uh, 
mm, collective resurrections listed in Scripture. There's one at the end of time. Um, there's one on the day Christ was crucified. People came out of the tombs and went back into Jerusalem. Right? Collective resurrections. There are eight, though, individual resurrections. One by Elijah, the widow's son of Zarephath, the Shunammite's son. Uh, there's a resurrection when a dead guy is thrown into Elisha's grave, touches the guy's bones and comes out. You talk about power, right? God's power. Don't think that your testimony doesn't matter when encouragement is needed. It matters. Elisha was still testifying through his dead bones. And then Jesus raised a number of people, Jairus' daughter, the young man in name, Lazarus. Peter raises his uh, a woman named Tabitha, and then Eutychus by Paul. What's our takeaway? I think it's not uncommon to read in Scripture that one person encouraged another and blow by it. Okay, so I'm, I'm reading Scripture, encouragement, great. Let's get to something that's helpful, encouragement. Okay, second time, let's, let's find something that's going to help me out today. Uh, encouragement, I get it, so they're encouraging each other. What else? I need something else. As if encouragement's a throwaway statement, some sort of ancient greeting card sentiment. But the man who was used to raise Eutychus from the dead, the same man that had been beaten five times with whips, three times with rods, had been shipwrecked three times, floated in the open sea a day and a night, and had gone without food and water in order to stay on mission. He apparently thinks encouragement's important. In fact, he leaves a riot to get on to the next place to encourage them. In fact, I'd go so far as to say it's great that Eutychus was raised from the dead. I'm sure his folks were pumped about that. But what if that's not the most important thing going on in this passage? What if the resurrection of Eutychus is ancillary? Our faith, frankly, does not hinge on the resurrection of Eutychus. It hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in whom we take great encouragement this morning. What if the most important thing happening in this passage this morning is encouragement? Luke seems to think it's important. He's the author. He's the one tracing Paul's works around the Mediterranean, God moving him around. He notes that Paul goes from here to here to here, encouraging folks. And the list of names of those guys in verse 4, that list is offered probably to bring to mind these folks were carrying an offering. So their name and their region, these are all the regions that Paul had visited planting churches. These are the Gentile churches. So Pater from Berea, Aristarchus Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, uh, Timothy was from Lystra, Tychicus and Trophimus from a province of Asia. He's going church to church, offering encouragement, but he's also uh, saying, hey, encourage the church in Jerusalem by sending some money. Remember, a great persecution had broken out against the church in Jerusalem and scattered believers all over the Mediterranean world. Paul's actually uh, getting a collection together and it's thought these guys are carrying the monies that Paul's collected to get to Jerusalem to encourage the church in Jerusalem. It appears to me that Luke thinks and Paul thinks encouragement is significant. 
What are you facing this morning? What are you tempted to give up on and fall back into? What's that sin you need to say once and for all, I'm done with it? I'm going to press on. What illness? What marriage issue? What parenting issue? What work issue? What school issue? Do you need encouragement in? Encouragement's critical for the followers of Jesus. We need to learn how to, to express our need for encouragement. Some of us won't go so far as to say, yeah, I actually need encouragement. I'm thinking of giving up. We need to express our need for it. And then we need to cheer each other on. We need to come around each other and bear one another's burdens. It's together for the gospel. The writer of the book of Hebrews says about encouragement, let us consider, let's figure this out, let's think about how we can spur one another on to love and good deeds. How we can encourage each other, motivate each other, stir each other up to love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. You know, it's, there's a supreme irony to the fact that for many, it's not uncommon when you hit a bump in the road to stop attending church, to stop going to your small group. It happens all the time. When things get really tough, we don't get to the place and the people that are actually charged by God to help us continue on. Don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another. And all the more as the day, and it's a particular day, you see it's capitalized, it's the day of judgment. As the day of judgment approaches, we need to encourage each other. We need to help each other move forward. Keep on keeping on. Fight the good fight because there's a day coming. What day? It's the day when we have to give an account for how we spent our time, our talents, our treasure. There's a day coming when both believers and non-believers have to give an account. We'll stand before our Creator, and we have, to, we have to give an account. Well, that day's coming. Because that day's coming, don't lapse in attendance. Don't give up meeting together. Meet together. Meet on Sunday morning in a big group. Meet throughout the week in small groups so that you can spur each other on and be spurred on to loving good deeds. Too often we think of encouragement as something aiming simply at affections. Help me feel better. While it certainly should impact our feelings, encouragement should impact our feelings, the desired aim of encouragement is action. By that I mean that encouragement may not always make me feel better initially. It'll certainly affect how I feel. Let's cheer each other on to loving good deeds. But biblical encouragement is always aimed at preparing us for the day of judgment. Biblical encouragement is always aimed at addressing my actions, my attitudes, not primarily my feelings. I love the NIV's use of the word spur. I think the NIV may be the only translation that uses it. Matt, would you fly that one more time? 
It's Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider how we may spur one another on. Other translations say provoke, stir. I love spur because it draws for us a picture of the impact that encouragement is supposed to have on us. Now, when I put pictures of spurs up on the screen, I see they look pretty aggressive. I know that. Uh, the bottom one is actually from the second century. So spurs aren't a modern Western uh, invention. When spurs are used correctly by a rider, they are not meant to draw blood or to bruise an animal. In fact, spurs are not normally even worn by riders unless the situation is particularly dangerous, unless there's a real urgency. For example, if you go on a trail ride out west and you mosey along, they're not going to equip you with spurs. They'll give you a helmet, but they're not going to equip you with spurs. And if you know your horse well, you don't even need it. Just gentle touch of the heel and the side of an animal that you know well and you have a rapport with, no spurs are needed. But in battle, when a very clear directive needs to be had, and when there are lots of distractions around for the horse, the animal, and a poor decision, a bad decision, could be cataclysmic for both horse and rider, then we want to get the animal's attention. Not to damage the animal, but to send a clear message about what needs to take place. Spur one another on to love and good deeds. Many of you know Glenn Eggert. He served as an elder for many, many years here, 40 years to be exact. He was in attendance at Global Bible Church. I think he did four or five what I would like to call tours of duty as an elder. Elders can serve uh, up to uh, four one-year consecutive uh, terms of service, so they can serve four years, then they have to rotate off the board. I think Glenn did four or five tours of duty. So that's 16 to 20 years as an elder here at Glenn Bible Church. In his most recent term of service, he wrote a charge to the elder board. Now, uh, after four years of service, as men are rotating off the board, they write a, a letter, a charge, to those that are still on the board as they segue off the board. These charges are kept. They're actually published in a book. We have charges going back, I think, as far as to 2002, about 20 years of charges from elder to elder. Glenn, before uh, he retired and moved away, which was last uh, summer, um, he wrote a final charge to the elder board. And I want to read a portion of it to you as we think of spurring each other on and the value that encouragement has to the body of Christ, to me, to you, to one another. I want to read it because Glenn has the gift of encouragement. He and Janiel, they, um, they retired, they moved south uh, to uh, greener pastures. Uh, but uh, they're plugged in church down there. But he has the gift of encouragement. He was a, a coach uh, by vocation. And, uh, you know, it's like evangelism. Everybody is to evangelize, but some have a gift of evangelism. We're all to encourage one another, but some have a gift of encouragement. Look at what he says regarding encouragement. For the longest time, early in the letter, he admits, I didn't like my gift. He felt like, he says, it wasn't very sexy. I wanted a sexier gift. 
something that made more of an impact. And then he realizes uh, the value of his gift, and he really stepped into using it. He says about encouragement, it is an invitation onto the spiritual battlefield. Did you know that there is a prophetic side to encouragement? Now, prophecy is to tell the truth. It's a truth-telling and a foretelling. Here's what's ahead. You need to buck up. You need to press on. There's a prophetic side, he says. Did you know that God performs miracles through the gift of encouragement? Moving people, moving a church forward? Do you know that the gift of encouragement can be used to lead people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? Let me pray for us that we'd encourage each other. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, that you love us perfectly and you've demonstrated it through his sinless life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection. And that greater are you, your spirit, in us who are trusting in your son than anything we'll face in this world. Thank you that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Would you encourage us this morning? And would you raise the ministry of encouragement in our church? Would you strengthen it? Would you help us encourage each other? In Jesus' name, amen.